too many elderly men uh, to to choose from this week in Washington, <laughs> folks. Um, okay, this place is lousy with them. Are we allowed to? Are we allowed to swear on our program? By the way, yes. just out of curiosity. Well, I mean, it's not a family. Uh, <laughs> right. I think Susan's got the word "shit" in her calm. This I, I've repeatedly been allowed to use that before. Pushing the envelope. Uh, no, and I I think I've published "fuck" in in the print New Yorker. Well I done. Think. I have too, actually. For a while, I tried to get it into every story because yeah. I thought it just. It was it had sort of delightful. Sort of edgy street cred. You know that most famous, one of the most famous New Yorker pieces ever, and if you haven't read it, go back and find it. An entire piece translated from the Russian about the <laughs> elaborate language of swearing in oh, Russian. Nice. And I'm telling you, you got you to read this piece. It is, first of all, it is an important well, Col- I, cultural piece, well, but it is. Really, do, as we, much as I think the Russians are probably great swearers, they have nothing on Pashto swears, which I wrote a piece about, <laughs> which is, you know, the most vibrant. Everybody is constantly being like smashed into a million pieces and shoved up each other's yes. things. It's not a good situation. Yeah, no. And if, the thing about Russia, right, which makes it a sort of a cultural piece, too, and not just about swearing, is that it's all prison slang because of the gulag era. Oh, Basically, great. every family in Russia is, <laughs> is a prison family. It's fluent. Oh, that's Boy, great. Things yeah. have fallen a lot since my days at the Wall Street Journal when <laughs> you were not even allowed to use the word crotch. Oh. I had to describe tights at some point, and I was I had to describe that it was there was a knit area where the legs came together. Oh, oh that's man. amazing. You know, and Peter Baker in the New York Times just a few years ago was so stodgy. Remember when Dick Cheney swore at, I believe it was Pat Leahy oh, in the Senate, yeah. and there was like a huge thing oh, about, could right. you could you publish it? And he was only allowed to do it once, as I recall, and there was a whole meme on Twitter like, free Peter Baker, let him swear and print. You know, and then the Trump era came and everybody was allowed oh to, to swear because okay. if the president says it, then. But now the worst thing you can say is someone is an elderly gentleman. Welcome to The Political Scene from The New Yorker, a weekly discussion about the big questions in American politics. I'm Susan Glasser, and I'm joined by my colleagues, Evan Osnos and Jane Merrill. What a week. On Thursday, the special counsel investigating President Biden's handling of classified documents released a report that shook the White House and politics in 2024. The big takeaway, of course, was that it cleared Joe Biden. Unlike Donald Trump, he won't stand trial for his possession of classified documents. But wow, it might have cleared President Biden, but it did so in potentially a highly damaging way. The report called him, quote, a well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory and said that was one of the main reasons they couldn't imagine him being put in front of a jury. That one sentence has recentered his age at the heart of our campaign in a potentially devastating way. And speaking of bad weeks for octogenarians, it was a political crisis of a very different sort this week for another one of Washington's leaders, Mitch McConnell up on Capitol Hill. The legislative failure to fund aid to Ukraine has marked what might be the beginning of the end of the very long McConnell era. Both of these leaders are clearly entering a new phase in this 2024 election year, and we'll talk about both of them today. But Evan, we've got to start back with Biden, of course, and those eight words, sympathetic, well-meaning, elderly man with a poor memory. 
Evan, is this going to be written in Joe Biden's epitaph? I think what's brutal about that line is that the worst thing you can do in politics is reinforce an existing storyline. And the storyline is something that everybody who turns on their TV sees, which is that he is, what was it, a, a sympathetic, sympathetic, well-meaning elderly man. And with now a poor the question memory. is, what about that memory? What about that memory? That's right. Uh, there's no arguing that Joe Biden is old, Jane, but the question is, Is he old in a way that matters? That's where the memory comes from. Of course, we're talking about the special counsel, Robert Hur's report. Uh, The big news, I think, from the Biden White House's perspective is that he was cleared. He will not face charges from this year-long investigation into his possession of classified documents at his home and office after uh, leaving the White House when he was vice president. So cleared, but at the same time, they said he didn't remember things, including, and this really seemed to upset the president, including the date of his beloved son Bo's death. Well, it certainly didn't help that then he was so angry, he rushed out, gave a press conference last night, that is Thursday night, and promptly confused which country El Sisi is the head of, suggested it was Mexico, not Egypt. As you know, initially, the president of Mexico, El Sisi, did not want to open up the gate to allow humanitarian material to get in. I talked to him. I convinced him to open the gate. So he blundered his way through the press conference, and the press looked awful, too. But honestly, the thing is incredibly damaging, I think. And it actually raises some real questions to me about what was going on at the Justice Department. I mean, this is a report that the White House knew was coming, and presumably the attorney general had reviewed in advance. And people are saying that the independent counsel was way beyond his remit in making these personal asides about Biden, and why was it they were allowed to stay in? I mean, that's not to say, though, I mean, listen, the damage is done. People recognize it as potentially true and potentially a gigantic campaign issue. Well, one thing that's interesting, you know, the White House, or I should say Biden's lawyers did push back. There was this exchange of sort of a a formal exchange in which they're saying this is gratuitous, this is out of line, in a sense saying, look, this is a prosecutor who was originally appointed by Donald Trump the implication being that he is seeking to score political points here. Now, Merrick Garland is the one, after all, who made him special prosecutor. I think there will be a question about why do Democrats tend to do this? They sort of imagine that this is going to project a sense of high-minded equanimity, but it seems to sort of blow back on them every time. Just I let think, the record show when he was appointed, I said, I see trouble. <laughs> I, that's <laughs> absolutely right. Absolutely. But then why? Right. But, but really, I mean, Eric Holder, who was the attorney general under Obama, came out and said, you know, there's a process that, that the Justice Department should have reviewed this report. And and if this was inappropriate, said something and stopped it. I mean, of course, there would then be charges of a cover-up and right. all exactly. of that kind of thing. And, and it's worth remembering but, that James Comey was absolutely blistered in an in an IG's report for going beyond his remit when he described Hillary Clinton as careless. And there is a, an, an argument that's sort of germinating today that her has exposed himself to that kind of criticism. Yeah, there was a big Comey flashback that a lot of people were having when this came out yesterday. But in the end, we can all say with confidence, we may not know what's going to happen in 2024, but we do know that 
voters are much more likely to care about the question about whether the president is, in fact, uh, compromised in any way by his age and a potential loss of memory far more than they're going to care about the process issues Absolutely. that consume us no, here in Washington. I mean, and I think, I think I mean it's hard to tell at this moment because everything seems so huge in the moment. But at the Good moment, point. this seems like a crisis. I'm getting emails from people saying, we have to do something. Can't they do something about meaning, Biden? Meaning, meaning what? there needs to be another nominee. Yeah, mm. and, and, I do and, think and that's, the, just, that's the immediate kind of right clutch in the gut for many Democrats as they look at this. And I think that's our big macro theme this week is a, a sort of a, a, a everyone understands there's a crisis in a way of American leadership. And we are going to talk more about the crisis of leadership on Capitol Hill, where both Mitch McConnell in the Senate and Mike Johnson in the House are are compromised and weakened figures. But before we get to that, Evan, we are also talking about a, a president who is going into an election year with some of the lowest, if not the lowest, approval ratings of our president since the history of modern polling began. Uh, he's obviously not in a position to be muscling through uh, big and urgently needed pieces of legislation like aid to Ukraine through Congress at this moment in time. But more importantly, what is the reason for those low approval ratings? It's not because of Republicans who didn't already didn't like Joe Biden, it's because Democrats and independents are very concerned. It's not because they don't like Joe Biden. Probably everybody in the country, more or less, of goodwill agrees with the idea that he's a sympathetic, well-meaning elderly man. It's because of the elderly part. It's because of the memory part that those numbers are where they are, don't you think? I think there are a variety of factors, but there's just no way to say it any other way than you did, which is that the foremost fact is that people think that he's too old and and not up for the job. There is this question, and this is a question that people are actively discussing now, is sort of how did this get to this point, meaning that he was the unchallenged nominee. And I think in some ways, the critical moment, the period was before the midterms. There was this feeling among Democrats that, all right, the Democrats are going to get their clocks cleaned in the 2022 midterms. And at that point, there will be this big discussion about who the nominee should be. And Biden will be sort of graciously ushered off the stage. But it didn't happen because Democrats outperformed. All of a sudden, he had this, in a sense, uh, he, he had a stronger leg to stand on. And that muted this what would have been a natural discussion within the party about, well, who is best served? And so all of a sudden you went from that period and here we are. Jane, I want to ask you because you're I, I so agree, you know, immediately getting the messages and the that feeling in the pit of the stomach like, oh, you know, that's it's only February of the election year. Tell me a little bit more about what you think the conversation here in Washington is. Is it is it just fantasy that needs to be discarded, that there's any option other than Biden? I mean, it's been a, a loop, a conversation <laughs> loop that's been going exactly. on since last summer, nonstop. Yeah. I mean, and, and and one part of it is that because his vice president is someone who people don't see as a strong alternative, there's not an obvious alternative. And I think that's been part of the issue here. Uh, there was somebody who said to me, just last night when Biden called a press conference and it was unclear what he was going to say, someone said to me, you know, this is what LBJ did and no one knew he was going to step down. And he said, I'm not running for re-election. Maybe that's what no, Biden's going to do. No, I got to tell you, do, that but, person does but, not know Joe Biden. <laughs> and it I was can not, confidently say that. not what happened. No, no, it's interesting. People's minds immediately went to that. Uh, you know, I was 
earlier this week at a dinner uh, where there was a, a very senior Democratic member of Congress, and that person was absolutely bombarded by questions from everybody at the dinner, uh, who included senior European types, included uh, uh, well-known Washington analysts, independent analysts, uh, uh, journalists, and bombarding this Democratic member of Congress. What happens? Tell us about, you know, if if Biden leaves, and this is before the report, what if Biden uh, steps down or is forced to step off the ticket before the convention? What happens after the convention? These are the kinds of conversations that people continue to have inside Washington, never mind at the level of everyday voters. Evan, you've done a lot of reporting, of course, inside Biden's White House. Do you think that, you know, behind closed doors without any of us pesky, you know, journalist <laughs> president, that that what's yeah, their think, version of it? No, I think they, you know, you sort of put yourself in their shoes for a second. The short answer to your question, Susan, is no, they are not secretly strategizing about how to usher him off the stage, at least not at this point. And that effort, were it to happen, would not be from within the White House. Look, there is a an inherent dynamic, which is that the people that are surrounding a president that are most loyal and devoted to that person are on some level constrained. It's impossible for them uh, to come out and tell Susan Glasser or Jane Mayer or me, you know, hey, I really think that this is um, this is untenable. So everything that I've been getting from people who are in the White House and close to Biden is that they actually think that in the end, they are probably able to ride out this quite demonstrable unhappiness among the public about his age. And the reason partly is that they look at Trump, and this is not just a general Trump is bad and orange argument. It's that Trump called Orban the president of Turkey. It's that Trump confused Nikki Haley with Nancy Pelosi, blah, blah, blah. You know all of these. But that that is part of how ordinary Americans who are not sitting in Washington talking about this in the way we talk about it, that's how they, to some degree, put these two things side by side I mean, in their minds. I have to say, I, I covered Reagan when he was beginning to lose his marbles a little bit. And his own aides dimed him out a bit. Unlike, this is the unlike, great revelation, by the way, folks, I can tell you in Jane's terrific book, <laughs> <thank> you, Lance, <laughs> Landslide, on, uh, on Reagan's reelection and uh, his second term in office. They considered invoking the 25th mm-hmm. Amendment. Um, but in what you're saying, Evan, is that the people around Biden are not saying that. That's right. They are not saying that. What I keep hearing is that Jill his wife would be the person who was most important in having urged him to run for a second term. Is that really true? Well, I think, I mean, intuitively, yes. I don't think there's anybody that argues against that. There's an excerpt out today uh, of a book about Jill that has a moment in 2022 where he was giving this lengthy press conference that went on and on and on. And finally, she sort of came down and stood in the doorway and looked around at his aides and said, like, Who's letting him stay out there so long? This isn't helping anybody, not helping him. So in a way, she's in this position of being both his guardian, but then also if she's not the person saying don't run, then who is? Yeah. Jane, why is it, do you think, that Trump, as of right now with voters, uh, is not being judged as harshly on this question of age and capacity due office? Back in 2020, interestingly enough, in surveys in the fall, Biden had the advantage on this, that he was seen as more capable to do the job of president, more fit for office. There were more people worried about Trump's lack of fitness for office. Donald Trump, not only 77 years old, you guys pointed out already, he <laughs> is capable as 
Biden is of making a gaffe at any given moment. He, the things he doesn't know, you can't even tell whether it's that he doesn't know them or he forgot them. Uh, I, well, I think it comes down to two things. One is there the physical appearance of the two. Biden does seem weakened because his, you know, I have some, my voice has gone recently. I understand it makes somebody seem weaker, and and he and his is, you know, his diction is not as clear as it was, and and so you can see that uh, Trump seems, you know, still more powerful in his physical presentation. But really, I think equally important, maybe even more important, is that the the two ecosystems of the press that these two men exist in. You have Mm. on the right, you have full-time pro-Trump propaganda machine delivering coverage of Trump to his base. They are not talking about his Mm slip-ups. On the Democratic side, you have... Uh, mainstream press, which focuses on, among other things, Biden's slips. You don't see similar coverage. There's no equal sort of fair coverage of Trump on the right. They just promote him. And that's not what you get surrounding Biden. So so there's there's a real disequilibrium in the way these two people are being covered. Yeah. I think there's also probably a salience issue in the sense that some of the things Trump does are so um, are so grandly, completely offensive that they sort of blot out the sun of everything else. When he talks about being a dictator, when he talks about getting vengeance, all of this stuff becomes more salient, to use the term that political scientists would use, when it comes to what are you paying attention to. And in a perverse way, as Jane says, it kind of projects a sort of ghastly vigor. And I think that that, in its own way... Um, <laughs> ghastly vigor, Evan. That right? is a phrase I'm going to remember here. But you're right, the, high, the hierarchy of crises that Trump forces us to confront in that hierarchy of crises, uh, his age and capacity is often subsumed by his uh, dictatorial aspirations. Yeah, and face if, it, if you I will. mean, look at his record. He's never told the truth. Right, I exactly. Mean, so which part of it is, right. yeah. facts, facts are not his his specialty. So, uh, <laughs> right, so who's to know are. if he ever knew right. that Victor also, Orban was not the same person? <laughs> you know, it's interesting. I mean, this is part uh, of the, one. one of the things that's been running through this is that ever since Biden came out and, and confused the uh, president of Egypt for Mexico, that everybody's been posting examples of this. I mean, on the other side. I mean, there's right. an example in the in the, the segment that followed on Fox News immediately afterwards about this very topic. The Fox News host called the governor of South Dakota, the, the governor, governor of South, South Carolina. Carolina. And everybody, well, I mean, we all know because we're reporters, all public figures screw up all the time. It's just becomes a matter of what you focus on. Totally. Although I will say, and I do think it's important, may, may, and maybe you guys disagree, but I Joe Biden doesn't just have a communications problem or a media problem or a coverage problem. Like, And he, he, he got very prickly in his news conference with reporters. In fact, he suggested that it was somehow all just a figment of their, you know, uh, sort of imagination. Joe Biden actually does have an age problem. He is the oldest president in yeah. American history. He is asking the American people to send him back to office until he is 86 years old. And I think the concerns of the voters, it would be a mistake politically uh, to dismiss them as some figment of the media's imagination or as something that uh, is not legitimate. At least that's my perspective. So the Democrats are going to be stuck having to just embrace this. I saw saw, (laughs) saw a, uh, a potential lawn sign that already said Biden, and underneath it it said 
um, a well-meaning elderly man. <laughs> Already? <laughs> you wow. Well, thank That's... God for the Internet. No, I think you're right. I mean, look, this <laughs> is going to be uh, age equals wisdom. That's the Democratic Party strategy. That's what they do. All right. Well, listen, we'll take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about another 81-year-old who had a really bad week in Washington. (laughs) If you've been enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on the podcast platform of your choice. And while you're there, please don't forget to hit the follow button so you'll never miss an episode. Thank you so much for listening. So we've talked about President Biden uh, and, uh, you know, a real challenge for his reelection, but also for his leadership here in Washington for the rest of the year. He, he is the president right now. Up on Capitol Hill, it was a pretty tough week for both Republican leaders, Mitch McConnell in the Senate, Mike Johnson in the House is barely hanging on uh, since he became a very unlikely speaker. But let's talk about Mitch McConnell. You know, the Mitch McConnell era in American politics has had a very long run. He's the, in fact, as of last year, the longest serving party leader in Senate history. I felt like this week was the week we watched his his kind of power and his hold over Senate Republicans evaporate in real time. What, what do you make of Well, that? absolutely. I mean, you've actually got people now in his Republican caucus who are describing his leadership as a disaster because of what happened with the major bill that was going to combine aid for Israel, for Ukraine, and the border. And the Republicans maneuvered themselves into a position where they were voting against their own bill on this. And they're blaming McConnell, but actually it was not not his fault, basically, in this particular case. But um, but he is the leader and the leader gets gets the blame. And so you've got his uh, he's got a number of young bucks in his caucus who um, are to his right and are calling for him to, you know, step down or, or be replaced. And they include people like like um, Mike Lee, uh, Ted Cruz, um, J.D. Vance. I mean, these are people who— Josh um, Hawley. Josh Hawley. Um, they see their names in that leadership position. <laughs> so, Evan, is it about— the far right challenging Mitch McConnell, or is it about Donald Trump hmm. challenging McConnell and using those ambitious sorts like Josh Hawley as his proxies? Yeah, I think on some level, if we're going to put this in the sort of octave of Greek myth, you had these two these two giant fatherly figures competing for loyalty, and you have for a long time Mitch McConnell had enough influence and clout that people would kind of line up with him, and now here is Trump coming along. And the two of them, after all, let's remember, have been essentially um, enemies. Uh, There was the fateful moment when Mitch McConnell uh, did not cast a vote for impeachment after the January 6th insurrection, um, but did heap criticism on Trump, called him practically and morally responsible for provoking the events of the day. No question about it and said that this would be something for the criminal justice system to sort out. And for a long time, McConnell's own record and clout within Congress was able to keep his view of things uh, dominant. And I think at this point, the truth is that because of the things we're going to talk about, he has just 
slipped away, sort of ebbed away over the course of the last two years. And it's now reaching the point where it's the quiet part out loud. Well, so, Jane, t- talk a little bit about McConnell's sort of trajectory over the last couple of years. I mean, one thing is simply not just that he his age, but he really has he's he's slipped in an actual sense. Uh, he slipped and fell a year ago, right. and he's he's been visibly diminished th- since then. He had those two moments of sort of public brain freeze uh, in the wake of his fall and concussion. Uh, he just sort of seems like a guy who's on the the brink of retirement. Well, uh, he seems absolutely impaired in front of full view, and 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 you have to wonder if if the camera caught him during these moments when he was doing press conference. Were there other moments like this? And what I hear is that behind his back, there's a huge, you know, maneuvering to take his place, basically. He ha- he is, is seen as weak after having been the master of the Senate in his time. And, and his time seems to be passing by him. I mean, I just think that it's been a fascinating story, as you say, Evan, of these two men, Trump and McConnell, and that that McConnell has hoped to be, he's trying to work on his legacy. He wants to be seen as the, you know, the master of the Senate, and he wants to be seen as the person who remade the judiciary and the Supreme Court. But in fact, I think what history will remember him for is enabling Donald Trump, because Mm. he had the power to confront him at any number of times, and he failed yeah. to do that. He may have made a few speeches, but twice he voted to acquit him in impeachments. And even more than that, I think if you go back and you look at the record, one of the most interesting things is is the single thing that McConnell says the most important thing he did in his career was hold open the Supreme Court seat in 2016 mm-hmm. that by, by right and by law that Obama should have been able to fill and he had nominated Merrick Garland. But what McConnell did was he obstructed Constructed that uh, nomination, held open that seat, which many people think is the key thing that that helped elect Trump. And so he helped get Trump into the White House by the way that he basically obstructed the normal process of government. He likes to be seen as an institutionalist. This was not an institutionalist move. Yeah. And that helped get Trump elected. And so he kind of paved the way for all of this. Absolutely did. I, I, look, I, I, Jane, I think you put it perfectly that in a sense, Mitch McConnell made the choice to enable Donald Trump. That was his grand strategy. And the question has always been sort of why would he do that considering how much he loathes this guy? And the reason is that uh, Mitch McConnell's primary motive, his dominant calculus was always what is the best for my party? What will deliver partisan power, raw partisan power? And if that means putting Donald Trump in power and enabling him to stay there and do everything he wants, then I will do that. And in some ways, the collision we're seeing now is that he's running up against a cohort within his party who does not have the same theory, which is to say they are more than happy to be cannibalistic. They will go after their own. They will go after other fellow Republicans. You saw this first on the House side, but now also within the Senate Republicans that the people we've been talking about, like Ted Cruz, like Josh Hawley, that they really come from a generation in which they are Republican second and they are for themselves and their cohort first. Well, I, I, would, yeah. I would say I think mm-hmm. there's a lot of themes to pick up on mm-hmm. here and certainly the sort of you might call it the House GOPization of the Senate GOP is an aspect of that. The Trumpification uh, overall of the Republican Party is an aspect of it. But also, to Jane's point, it's about 
this man, and it's about a, a generational change that is taking place. Mitch McConnell, in defining himself as a master of the Senate, of course, that's the title of Robert Caro's amazing book about Lyndon Johnson, a previous era's master of the Senate. McConnell wanted power, but he wanted power towards certain ends. McConnell wanted to get things passed, it seems to me, and take credit for them and have power and remake America in the conservative image that he wanted. Whereas this new generation, it's about performative politics. It's about taking votes that benefit them politically, but don't necessarily produce legislation. And that takes us back to this disaster actually of this week, where they demanded a deal on the border as the price for Ukraine aid. Ukraine aid was the primary goal of Mitch McConnell in in this final kind of months or years of his term. And yet when the deal was then on offer by Democrats, they made a deal. They said, no, we don't want that. They'd rather have an issue for television, for the voters, for the ballot box. To me, that's an important part of the transition and why Mitch McConnell doesn't feel like the man of the moment Anymore, You know, I'm not sure that I completely agree that he is about things that are larger than his own power and the party's power. I mean, if you listen to people who've known him for a long time, John Yarmouth, for instance, who was congressman from Louisville and who's known McConnell from the start, he will say, you know, McConnell never wanted to do anything. He just wanted to be someone. Mm. There is a very cynical aspect of McConnell. I mean, he uses these issues. You're right. He passes legislation. He passes things like the huge tax bill for for during the Trump administration. But it's part. It's instrumental. It's because that then brings in the money from Wall Street, which helps the Republican Party get reelected. It's about power with McConnell. Right. But it, Jane, I think that's. It, I agree with that. The point about the generational change is that people like Joe Biden and Mitch McConnell believed you had to get something done in order to obtain power, that that was what voters Mm -hmm. wanted you to do. Mm -hmm. Not just go on TV. We've reached mm -hmm. a new era, it seems to me, where they've just gotten rid of that part of the deal altogether. So it's about the change in power politics in Washington that a new generation says, screw it, it's too much trouble. And in fact, it might be a liability for us to work at all, ever, with the other party. In fact, they they would say that obstruction is a far greater virtue than passing conservative law. Nobody was a bigger obstructor than McConnell for years, Mm. you know. And so in a way, what I think is going on is that McConnell's superpower for many years has been his shamelessness. You could not shame this man. He can be as hypocritical as he was about the Supreme Court nominees um, and, you know, saying that it was too close to an election in the case of Merrick Garland and then jamming in Amy Coney Barrett days before the next election. He didn't care. You could not shame this man. And I think that gave him a lot of power. But what's happened I think this young generation you're talking about, they're even more shameless than he is. And and, and, that, and, and so they're out, you know, cynicizing that's, him. That's way, I don't want to cut to the end here, but I have to say that is the core fact of what's going on is that Mitch McConnell innovated a form of political technology. And now this young generation has taken it from his hands and, re- and now they are beating him with it. Well, I think that's a, a, a very important insight. It's also the other part. There's a very interesting debate. We started with this in the McConnell conversation. I think it's very important to come back to this. This 
almost iconic moment of the party not letting go of Donald Trump after January 6th and in his second impeachment trial. And everything is sort of teetering on the knife's edge there. What will McConnell do? Everyone knows at this point his relationship is ruptured, is broken with Donald Trump because people forget. They think, oh, well, he hasn't talked to Donald Trump since January 6th. He actually hasn't talked to Donald Trump since December December Mm -hmm. of uh, 2020, when Mitch McConnell went to the Senate floor after December 14th, that was the date by which the Electoral College, uh, each state had to certify its results. They all did that as per the law. And as per our history, Mitch McConnell went to the Senate floor and he congratulated Joe Biden. He said he's the winner. The Electoral College has spoken. So today I want to congratulate President-elect Joe Biden The president-elect is no stranger to the Senate. He's devoted himself to public service for many years. And Donald Trump, you know, went ripshit about that. I think I can say that on our air per our (laughs) opening conversation. (laughs) And that's the last time that they spoke. So I think that's important to remind people. But had the Senate convicted Donald Trump after he left office for his role in seeking to overturn the 2020 election, a conviction also would have made this whole 2024 nightmare. It would not have happened. You know, there's reliable reporting that we did for The Divider that others have done that suggests that Mitch McConnell certainly was open to doing that. The key is that he couldn't bring along, he didn't believe he could. And that's the really interesting debate. He didn't believe he could have brought along enough of his Senate Republicans. That would have exposed him for no longer being the leader. It would have evaporated his power. And Jane, I think it actually proves the reliability of your thesis that Mitch McConnell was always about Mitch McConnell's power. He chose to stay in power with his Senate Republicans, not to defy them and go for Trump's conviction. That's what he chose. This was his profiles encourage moment, mm. yeah. and he failed it. Yeah. He could have stood up. He could have said, I am going to do the right thing. He could have pushed his caucus to the wall. Even if he'd lost, that would have been a moral and a political stand. And Trump could not, you know, he may have moved his caucus ahead, but he was he's always afraid to, to be in some way out of step with his caucus because the caucus is how he has his power. And so you know, so he he failed. Jane, where do you where you've done as much work as anybody in trying to understand the link between biography and strategy in somebody like McConnell. Where do you think that comes from? I mean, we we I think we all accept the point. Where do you think it originates from? You know, I mean, he's he comes from a poor background in Kentucky and he had polio as a child. He believes in perseverance, but Mm. he also has believed from the start that you can't do anything unless you can win. Mm. And, And if you don't win, you can't make change. And so winning is the most important thing to him. And I interviewed so many people, people who loved him, people who hated him. I read his speeches. I read his, you know, um, as told to autobiography. And there's just no principle that comes through. There's no core conviction beyond you have to win. And and that that's what he lives for. So in mm. a practical sense, Evan, can he keep on winning if Donald Trump is once again the nominee of his party? What does that mean in a practical sense for Mitch McConnell? You know, I was just thinking as Jane was talking about that, that it, it really is 
he was a forerunner to everything that Trump represents, this kind of desiccated form of victory in which it just doesn't matter how or why, but simply the fact that you win. There was once a moment I remember early on when McConnell, people people may not remember, but you know he started out his career, as you guys know. He was in favor of collective bargaining and minimum wage. He was sort of pro-environment. He was sort of center-leaning. He was pro-choice. finance reform. Yes, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And all of those things he abandoned along the way. And, and once he was asked sort of, how could you do this? This was supposed to be the great moment of revelation. How could you give up these things? And he says, well, because I wanted to win. And in a way, that there is baked into that philosophy a poison pill because at a certain point, if somebody else is willing to do even more to win, uh, then you're on the chopping block. So, Jane, that does beg the question, what do we think an end game scenario for McConnell looks like here? When they had a vote, we should point out earlier inside the conference, these rebels against McConnell, there were only 10 of them who actually were willing to stand up and actually seek to oust him as the leader. There was a press conference by a number of them this week after the embarrassing uh, takedown of the border bill compromise that McConnell had supported until he was forced to be against his own compromise. A number of them, Ted Cruz said, yeah, we still want to get rid of McConnell. They, They clearly don't have the votes yet. Do you think in the end, he will be toppled by his conference or he will choose to retire or step aside? Well, there's one thing we haven't really touched on that makes McConnell incredibly powerful, and that is money. Uh, He sits atop a machine that is unparalleled in pouring money into these Senate races and other state races. It uses several dark money groups that pour money into each other and fund the Senate campaigns on the Republican side. Um, And it's run by his former aides, by Stephen Law and some of the other people who have worked for him, who really act as his lieutenants. It's it's an astonishingly powerful and well-funded machine. So the Republican senators, they know they need his money. Um, And and that gives him an awful lot of power. And it seems impossible to me, that said, that if Trump were elected president, that McConnell would be able to stay on as majority leader if they had the majority in the Senate, if the Republicans did. I, it's, a, it's very hard for me to imagine, or as minority leader either. Yeah, I mean, he, he's now at such loggerheads with Trump. It's kind of untenable. Untenable, Evan, and yet nonetheless might continue a little bit longer. What do you think? You know, I, I sort of am thinking about what I've been picking up in terms of his relationship with the Biden administration, which has been kind of a, in some ways, there's a, a natural way in which that whole form of interaction of deal making is dying right now. I mean, there truth is that McConnell and Biden, in the end, for all of their policy disagreements, which are profound, do basically trust each other. And there's this moment when Biden was leaving the vice presidency when when McConnell gave this kind of speech, this ode to this idea of a guy who uh, would do what he says. Obviously, I don't always agree with him, but I do trust him implicitly. He doesn't break his word. He doesn't waste time telling me why I'm wrong. He gets down to brass tacks and he keeps in sight the stakes. And even up until the very present day, 
McConnell would, you know, call over to the White House and the two of these these old, what was it, well-meaning, um, I'm not sure I'm willing to apply that all together, but <laughs> right. um, elderly, 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 elderly gentlemen, men. Elderly that they, men. the two of them would kind of hash things out. And, and in a way, that whole concept has uh, just sunk and disappeared into the swamp. I, well, mean, I think they, I, you know, I have to say there was, I once heard uh, Biden um, tell a story about McConnell and about their negotiations together. And there's a sort of a, a, a humorous appreciation. But nonetheless, what Biden said was that after hashing things out with McConnell, McConnell turned to him and said, you must be mistaking me for someone who gives a shit. And <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, practical politicians of the old school uh, don't get stuck on sentimentality. And I think, uh, you know, it, this brings this conversation full circle. This is a story about uh, two octogenarians and how long they'll be with us in our politics. Uh, what a week. Some weeks are slow. Some weeks are a whole year's worth of news. This was definitely mm. one of them. Evan, Jane, thank you so much. Great to be with you both. Always a pleasure. Great to be with you. This has been The Political Scene from The New Yorker. I'm Susan Glasser. We had production assistance today from Alex D'Elia, Dan Richards, and Stephanie Kariuki. Stephen Valentino is our executive producer, and Condé Nast's head of global audio is Chris Bannon. Our theme music is by Allison Leighton-Brown. We'll be back next week. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>